back to the conversation. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and my co-host today is Kevin Shea from Stanford. Hopefully, you've already listened to part one of this two-episode series on innovation in pediatric orthopedics. We have heard from our results, Peter Newton and James Wall, about their experiences developing new devices. This time, we'll hear from two more pioneers, Renee Casey and Manoj Ramachandran. And I do want to stop at this point and apologize to Manoj for calling him Manaj throughout the entire episode. I uh, subsequently learned that I was mispronouncing his name, so mea culpa. And uh, after hearing from Rene and Manoj, we will wrap things up with some general questions and answers and discussion. We finished up last time with pediatric general surgeon James Wall from Stanford, so let's pick up where we left off. Uh, well, with that, let's let's keep it at Stanford. And Renee, will you take us through a little bit of your uh, your background, starting your first company? I guess it all started. I was studying at the Presbyterian Hospital in New York City uh, through Cornell, and uh, when I came back to Montreal, coming from using Epic, where I was frustrated every time that I used it, I came home to Montreal to to try to find the perfect EMR, and I just couldn't find you know what I was looking for. I love Apple products. I like the way they look. I like, you know, the clean, the clean screens and and the ergonomic buttons. And uh, so, uh, right out of the gates, I decided to build a tool. It wasn't uh, it wasn't to build a business. It was for me and my practice. And we started off. I hired uh, instead of buying a fancy chalet with my new surge, you know, my new surgery uh, salary. I decided to hire a full-time engineer and we started off by writing notes. How can we write notes that are quick using today's technology? So we, we literally build the best note writing tools. You could do it on iPad. You can use voice transcription, which was a big thing five years ago. And we, we really did that very well. And I started using it in my practice and then buddies wanted to start using the same tool. And then we just started grafting on tools. The next one to come was prescriptions. We wanted to figure out prescriptions. We build apps so you could prescribe from your phone. When you're rounding patients, we got it to connect to other EMRs. And a year later, we had a product. We had a really strong product and we scaled it rapidly to well over a million users. And um, it became a you know a great company, a revenue cash flow positive business. And we were rapidly acquired maybe um, a year and a half, two years into the, the venture. Great success story. Congratulations. And um, I think it, that really pulls out uh, another important theme. You know, if there's one theme for the day, it's probably all that there's a lot of different directions to, to bringing ideas to reality. But James was talking about uh, working through a university. It can help you out. It can spare you the personal investment. Then this is another direction where you took that personal risk and made some personal investment up front and, and it paid off. So I think that's a great uh, comparison. I mean, if you're building a product for yourself at business school, we talk about product market fit. If you're building something that will fix something in your practice, you have product market fit. And it's a great way to go. You know, Iera build a tool for himself to, to help him do surgery. So I think these are, you can, you can build businesses, not to build a business in the beginning, but, you know, fixing your own, your own problems. Yeah, well put. I think that's probably going to ring true for, for everyone. And uh, good segue. So, Manaj, will you uh, take us through? How you got started in this arena? 
Yeah, so just so I've had a, a, a both a conventional and an unconventional career along alongside each other. So my conventional career is I'm a paediatric orthopedic surgeon. I've been an attending. This is my seventeenth year, and I work in London. And my specialty is 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 the lower limbs, so hips, knees, and foot and ankle. Uh, but I also have been doing a lot of research and innovation within the hospital setup. But I've always had uh, this urge to build new ventures, new ideas outside of and sort of try and solve the problems I see in the hospital. So I started in training. So I've had sort of five-year cycles during my training as a resident. Um, I, I set up a couple of medical education companies. One did really well and I sold it and one didn't do well at all. Then when I started a, as a uh, as an attending, I, I got into medical devices and ended up meeting a serial entrepreneur who's actually faculty on the biodesign course at, uh, at Stanford, a guy called Julian Nikolchev. And it was very early into a company that he'd set up called Pivot Medical, which was make is out of Palo Alto making um, hip arthroscopy devices. And we, we built a bunch of them, patented a lot, and went through three rounds of funding, eventually got acquired by Stryker in 2013. And I learned a lot alongside sort of Stanford Biodesign on ideation, prototyping, going to market, et cetera. Um, then I got into uh, digital health and I think I'll share my screen now, actually, if I can. So I'll just put some disclosures up. So th these are three companies. I mean, I've been uh, on the advisory board of orthopediatrics since 2009, since they got going, so for a long time. So I'm, I'm very interested in pediatrics and solving all the problems that, that children have. And maybe James, we can talk about that one day separately. One of my uh, residents uh, introduced me to his flatmate, who was a neurosurgical resident, who said, you know, I'd like to do something that's innovative. I know you've done medical education and devices. And we started talking about digital health. He ended up going to Stanford to do an MBA. Um, and we ended up meeting a, a deep learning stroke machine learning engineer from uh, from Stanford who's doing a postdoc. And we came up with some prototypes for an AI algorithm that takes images of an ultrasound scanner and a CT and MR and then uh, automatically pick up the pathology and the anatomy, sorry, anatomy and pathology, and then send you a result. We actually started an ultrasound and that we won a competition at Stanford after publishing a paper that uh, Eric Schmidt happened to be at of Google and raised our first seed round through his uh, investment firm, which is called Innovation Endeavors. And that was back in 2016 that allowed us to build out our first proper sort of use case, which even though we started in orthopedics, we pivoted really quickly to uh, why would someone need to know the answer from an imaging modality like a CT or an MRI scan? So in orthopedics, there are many conditions that once you see the result, you need to act on absolutely immediately. There's There are very few time-critical conditions. So we ended up pivoting to stroke and um, built an algorithm that picks up from CT scans major occlusions such as large vessel occlusions or, or bleeds such as intracranial and, hemorrhage. And am I remembering correctly, this was, this was the project that started looking at hip dysplasia that's right. That was the yeah. first. The first algo we built was an ultrasound for hip dysplasia in children, and that was actually the one we used in the competition. And it, you know, we won that competition. But but Eric Schmidt kind of said this is an important condition, but it's not time critical. No one needs to do anything right now. Um, and when we pivoted to stroke, that was exactly you know the, the sweet spot. So we spent a, a lot of time and and capital um, building the algorithm and then going through the FDA. We we're the first ever uh, FDA approved AI algorithm. So De Novo in 2018. It took took a while. It took a lot of time sitting with the FDA to convince them uh, that you're building something that wasn't going to replace doctors first of all, and that it was that it wasn't going to miss strokes, for example, and definitely pick up the important strokes. Uh, so after getting the FDA approval, 
and then getting more injections of capital will build it out. And currently, we're very fortunate. We now have nine and almost 10 FDA approvals. And this is an all-time sense of conditions from strokes to aortic dissection, pulmonary embolism. And the most recent one was two days ago for uh, AAA, abdominal aortic aneurysm. So what we've essentially built is a system that takes imaging of CTs, MRI scans, and sends reads the um, scan, sends the result directly to your phone, and we built a communication, a mobile communication system around it. So essentially a mobile EMR, uh, so that wherever you are, you get the result immediately. Often the patient's still in the scanner when the result comes through to the person who might be in a comprehensive care center 30 miles away. And we built a team, so we're over 400 employees. We're in nearly 1,500 hospitals now, aiming to get to 2,000 soon. Um, so it's scaled very, very quickly, and I, that's what I spent the last sort of five years of my, of my life doing, uh, particularly helping building out a team in, in Europe. So that's been a, a crazy journey. I've still kept my my operating, and you know I still practice, but instead of doing anything else outside of my sort of time limit to practice, um, this is what I work on. And then following on from that, um, just we're, we're going to talk about how to raise funding, and we raised four rounds of funding for this, so we're post-series, not five rounds, post-series D. Uh, and we were made a sort of unicorn uh, last year, which is which is crazy, um, you know, worth over a billion dollars. Um, so now what uh, I'm working on is with my brother, who's a radiologist, who also built as his um, side hustle, a distributed ledger technology company. So blockchain, I mean, cryptocurrency has got a, a bad hype cycle at the moment. It's up and down, things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, but but the fundamental technology is based on, which is storing information in a distributed manner away from centralized servers is, is great technology. And we've been talking for a while about how we use that technology to do something helpful in healthcare and we particularly want to do something in pediatrics. So we are building a patient-owned platform where we give patients knowledge control of what devices are in them. So this could be any device. We're starting with pediatrics, any device that's inside you, any implant, and that could be a pacemaker, it could be... Uh, a plate, it could be a cochlear implant, and patients get to carry that information securely in a decentralized manner with them. They own that data, and when they share that data, they can share it securely with their clinical teams, and then we can pull out anonymized aggregated data to show to manufacturers, for example, for regulatory filings or for picking up early warning signs um, for uh, adverse events. Uh, and we and so just for everyone, sorry, for everyone uh, who's just listened to audio, what we were seeing on the last screen were basically uh, screenshots of an app where you would look at it and you would have your implants that are in your body or your child's body listed. Um, and then uh, another page of the app uh, shows a survey where you can describe symptoms you're having and I assume other things about what's going on with you at the time. Yeah, and the, co the core idea is that you you carry your, around your device information with you, but the added value is that you're securely connected to your clinical team that's related to the implant and you can um, donate data which such as surveys questionnaires outcomes but also uh, symptoms as to things that might be brewing that when you aggregate that data anonymize it uh, amongst the cohort of patients you can see whether anything is brewing such as infections failure etc so the sorts of use cases we think about are when patients are going to mri scan mr scanners or or through airport security scanners, and no one really knows what's inside them, whether it's compatible. When patients move geographies or hospitals, um, and no one knows what device was put in, because often these EMR systems aren't interoperable, they don't speak to each other, and patients don't carry their data around with them. And at a simplest level, when patients don't turn up after a procedure, we assume that they're doing okay, till they're not. 
Um, often patients, when they feel better, they don't come back. They don't tell us how they're doing. But when they when it fails, that's when we know that something's gone wrong, or not if they don't come back to our own healthcare system. And this slide, which obviously audio people can't see, just shows that we're building it on the back of multiple high-profile device recalls, and that's throughout every single implant vertical as well. But in breast implants, uh, metal on metal hips, um, vaginal meshes for urinary incontinence, and multiple devices that have been recalled. Often the problem being that problems aren't picked up early, and even after they've been recalled, patients are still out there with these devices in them because no one really knows who's got what when it comes to batch numbers, serial numbers, etc. So it's it's a bit of a problem that's really gained a lot of traction um, amongst all the regulatory bodies. So the FDA recently in October really upped their game in terms of their Section 522, which says you really need to show post-market surveillance evidence for any drug or device that's on the market. And they can issue Section 522s to companies and say, hey, tell us what your evidence is for the devices that are out there and your patients. If they don't have that data, then they may have to pull that implant off the shelf. The same thing's happened in the UK where they're calling for a centralized implant registry. Uh, and the EU have, have this process called MDR, Medical Device Regulations, that by next year, every device needs to have really thorough post-market surveillance data of adverse events and clinical follow-up in terms of outcomes to show whether patients are doing okay and whether something's going wrong. And that's, I mean, I just want to mention that because we built it and we just raised our first seed round. We started in October, we raised our seed round in December and we're now building it out um, with a team of around eight people um, who, are, who are building this. So, I mean, I'm very happy to talk about how to raise funding and all the challenges, um, but it's really getting that idea, getting that team together quickly and getting all the right getting all the ducks lined up in a row so you can accelerate as quickly as possible but in healthcare going slowly enough that you don't make mistakes because this is this is a big deal when you're putting healthcare you know healthcare data type software out there equally like the medical devices so um fascinating products fascinating stories um just to give our audience an idea of the scale through those rounds of funding for the ai venture and then for this most recent round you mentioned, can you just give us an idea of how much funding you were raising to get to that point of 400 employees for the first company and then to get to that team of eight for the second company? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy money. So uh, to, to get through uh, the FDA for something that's never been proven out before and, and, and the sort of technical evidence you need to put together, both on the, uh, the algo, algorithm side and getting all that evidence and data together, but also the people you need who can put that data together you know, our first three seed round for was for roughly around $10 million. Uh, and then altogether in five rounds, we've raised about a quarter of a billion dollars to so $250 million. Um, And those have been from pre pretty high profile blue chip investors. So I told you who we did the seed round with, but our Series A, which is the first round to essentially go to market with a, with a product, but actually it was after we got our FDA approval, was from Kleiner Perkins. And I can see it's the Stanford Buyers Center, so it's kind of and Caulfield and Buyers, so KPCV and Google Ventures did our Series A. And our subsequent rounds have been from people like Inside Scale. And our last round was from Tiger, which is a, a big multi-billion dollar fund. Um, so it's it's a, a lot of money, but at each point, you know, when you're trying to scale the team, but also trying to enter markets and that's going globally, you have to accelerate pretty rapidly. And your investors are on your, on your back making sure that you are raising sufficient capital to be able to execute all the outcomes you say you will achieve in, in X amount of time. 
And then assuming there are uh, listeners that are as clueless about this process as I am and will appreciate my uh, dumb questions. So at that point, you've been through five rounds and raised all that money. So what? how much of the equity of the company have you sold off to investors versus maintained for yourself and the original partners? A very difficult question to answer. <laughs> Except that you tend to give up a, a significant percentage at every stage. So typically, if you're a first-time founder and you're negotiating with a venture capital firm as to what amount you're going to give away, it can be anything from 10 to 30%. And that's a big range. Uh, but it's a big range of a company you might give away, depending on which investor you get on board and what you've got ready, um, how far you've got before you go and take that investment. So the earlier you are, the less you have, the more you may have to give up. So the best piece of advice is to do as much as you can in-house with as much capital that you can keep, you know, within friends, family, uh, remortgage your house, uh, whatever <laughs> Renny had to do, just to hold on to as much of it as possible. Um, but equally, you know, having no money, having 100% of nothing, um, so you can have a great idea, but you own all of it, but then you can't scale it. it. It's completely pointless. You've got to find the right balance. You've got to get the right um, VCs on board to help you grow and ac access market success, people, et cetera, et cetera. So, and at each stage, you'll be diluted down, but overall the pie gets bigger. So you're hoping that the shares you have in, in the company at, at its exit, and in terms of exit after four or five rounds of funding, there's only two or three ways this can go. It either fails completely, uh, which we hope it doesn't, or it gets acquired, and then you move into a, a bigger business, uh, and then you're going to stay there as a as a founder or employees till you earn your money. It's a new. It's called the earn out phase, uh, or you go to the public markets and become a public company, and and that's an IPO, so initial public offering. So there are different ways to get an exit from it, and and your investors want you to realize that exit. Uh, and put some timelines on it. But in, in medical device, it tends to be a little bit longer. In software, it can be very quick as it happened with, with Rene. But by this point, you're already becoming a company. As you grow and grow, you're becoming a sort of family and there are lots of families who are part of that business. And they're all, you know, you, you have a responsibility to all of them. So it becomes a very difficult decision, but sometimes it's taken out of your hands. Great. Um, well, thank you guys for painting those pictures of very different pathways to uh, to innovation. Uh, with that, I'm going to hand things over to Kevin and stop talking for a while. Connor, can I, yeah. can I just add one comment on to Minoja? It's a great story. Please. I love that. I just The one thing I wanted to maybe make a point to the innovators out there, particularly in PEDS, is, is thinking about the right size investment for your opportunity. And that's just so critical. So, you know, you hear raising $400 million, amazing. But Minoja had to convince them that this was a multi-billion opportunity, right? Multi-billion dollar opportunity. And it, and it is, and certainly in, in AI and imaging, but when you think about more limited applications, you know, go down to our umbilical catheter, that was 200,000 patients a year, let's call it a $20 million revenue potential. You can't spend 400 million for a market that's a $20 million opportunity, right? You have to have a right size investment. Venture capitalists work for people, they work for their LPs. They don't wanna just give you money, they wanna give you money and get a whole lot back. So I always, stress to people you when you hear stories it, it's a, it's an equation it's not just i can raise x amount it's i raise x amount because the opportunity is so big on the other end and if your opportunity is smaller you really have to be much more capital efficient and or it's not possible because if it you know again if it costs you a hundred million dollars to develop something for a 20 million dollar market that just it's not going to work so i just want to be really clear with people that you have to really think about both sides of that equation 
And I just want to add to that, I'll be very clear, you know, I'm still practicing and that really is the team that does it. So it's, it's Chris who started it, who's running it. He does it every single day. Um, David is a CTO. So with this, it's, 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 it's the group of people who decide to give everything else up to make it happen 24 uh, seven. And totally, it was only 250 million, but it wasn't 400 million. That's it's, but it's still a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's such a critical skill for clinicians. And same for our story, to be totally clear, run by Eric. Marissa's our chief technical officer. But but the point is, if if you want to move things out, you even if you go full time, you still need to have the ability to build a team, to motivate them, to share equity right. with them, uh, have hard conversations. It's it's a, it's a team sport. Yeah. Great. Well, fascinating uh, dialogue. I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot like uh, Carter, uh, but appreciate you all taking the time to talk about this. And I'll maybe just give a few questions. I know we, uh, Ira had to move on, but uh, James, you know, I think your comment about the right size in the market, because I'm a pediatric orthopedist and the, the many of the pediatric orthopedic diseases I see, they affect a relatively small number of patients, not just in my own practice at Stanford, but in the state of California, in the United States, North America, including Canada. And so it's a very different scalable <coughs> limit is, is much lower than what Minaj has been talking about. But thoughts about how the FDA recognizes that and perhaps makes it easier for pediatric device development, knowing that the constraints from industry are going to say, this is not a $2 billion, it's not a unicorn. This is a, a $200 million U.S. market, North American market. It's not a $2 billion. How does the FDA help pediatric companies with that perspective and knowing a lot what orthopediatrics has had to do where they've recognized there's a lot of pediatric conditions where where we need special plates and devices to work for pediatric patients that we can't adapt to adults and therefore kind of market something or develop something for both the adult and pediatric market simultaneously. Yeah, so you know, the FDA can only work within its legislated constraints and what it's allowed to do, um, but, but it does have some leeway. There is an entire division of the FDA um, dedicated to pediatrics and special populations that think about these things. Um, a couple of things that that division does, one, it's in charge of orphan products. So if you're really talking about a small enough number of patients in the thousands, then you can get orphan status. What does that uh, get? Number one, you, you don't have to pay as much fees, et cetera. So there's a little bit of a financial advantage. Um, but the real advantage is you can go through what's called the HDE pathway. Uh, and that pathway in terms of approval allows you on a very high level to show, you still have to show safety, but instead of benefit, you need to show probable benefit. And that's a really interpretable term, but in the ideal use case, it allows you to create a smaller clinical trial that shows again, probable benefit without potentially the, um, the same requirements as a large adult population. Um, and it requires a lot of faith and trust in the clinicians who are promoting it and backing the technology. And sometimes it works as intended. And, and sometimes, frankly, it's just as hard as a PMA. So I'm not going to oversell that that's a really easy pathway, um, but it does exist. Um, there's also, you know, there are humanitarian use exemptions. So if there's a product that has either it's not been approved yet, but it's ready for use and you believe it's the only thing that can help your patient, you can you can pitch the FDA uh, and get other physicians to agree with you that you should use it. And we've done that occasionally for heart valves and things that maybe are approved in Europe or not in the US. And I don't know if there's an equivalent European opportunity, but that's another thing that's done specifically for kids. Finally, on the, on the promoting innovation side, 
I'll, um, I'll promote a program that we're part of that the FDA sponsors, which is called the Pediatric Device Consortiums. And those are um, a combination of funding from the FDA. So we're able to spend that money to provide coaching to really early innovators. If you just have an idea and, and you've identified a problem and want to understand what it takes, we have an open forum every month at Stanford. Anyone in the world is allowed to come. It's not Stanford only. We provide support development plans. We also have dedicated resources that the FDA funds around consultants that can help you with your FDA strategy as well as uh, reimbursement and manufacturing strategies. And then finally, we have seed funding. We give away about half a million a year. So it's a good start. It's not enough to get a product all the way to market, but the FDA funds that. And then the final program I'll tell you um, is called the PCI program. That's part of the Pediatric Device Consortiums. And what that is, is that for people trying to get a pediatric indication within the US, this can be a large company with an adult device going pediatric or a small company trying to go pediatric. They will do essentially a pre-pre-sub meeting. So if you're familiar with the FDA, normally your first interaction is what's called a pre-sub where you meet with them, it's on the record, you start to discuss the evidence you think you need, they give you feedback, et cetera. Um, this meeting is before that and off the record and really allows pediatric companies to essentially um, get a, a consultation from the FDA who acknowledges that by not promoting pediatric innovation, we're withholding potentially good technologies. And so they're really motivated to try and help because they understand how hard it is and the constraints of our market. So, you know, in summary, there's sort of the legislated programs, HDE, HUD, Orphan, and then there's this promotion programs, if you will, between the Pediatric Device Consortium and the um, pre-sub pre meetings. Yeah. Could, I, could I just add to that on the so UK European side? Actually, I, I don't know why we haven't met yet, James, we definitely need to. Um, so one of, one of the reasons that this company I'm doing, Harflu, was, was to do with medical devices and patients not having that data. We're starting pediatrics because we've had conversations with regulators here in the UK, in Europe, and also in the US that the, the, that process is changing a bit because a lot of the evidence has been on getting devices to market, so the pre-market evidence. And, and people are worried about how that stifles innovation, particularly in rare diseases, orphan diseases, pediatric conditions, that getting that evidence together is difficult, really, really difficult. So there's a move with the regulatory bodies everywhere to push that emphasis more on the post-market and say, look, we'll allow you to go in, we'll give you some sort of approval, but you collect whole lifetime device data once that device is in a patient, and particularly in children, um, so that we know what's happening either in terms of outcomes and adverse events. And, and that's another reason we got into this and tried to build something that belongs to the patient, but also gives the evidence necessary back to the regulators for the lifetime of the device. But we should have a conversation about that, definitely. I'd, I'd love to, and, and we work closely with the FDA, and, and I'll add two things to that. And what they've put in place that will enable that is what's called the UDI, or so many acronyms with the FDA, but Unique Device Identifier. So every device in the U.S. now, with, with small exceptions for very small manufacturers, but essentially, you know, all the major orthopedic devices, every device has a unique identifier. And so each one, in theory, can be tracked. In practice, mm. we're still getting there. And then what that hopefully will lead to is what the FDA is calling real-world evidence approvals. And we've already done one of those as a prototype here at Stanford, happy to talk in detail. It's non-orthopedic, but we were able to essentially take an adult device that was being used in children. It was safe and effective, and the FDA was willing to 
um, work with us and the manufacturer to provide an approval purely based on a review of that real-world post-market evidence. And I think that's very promising and, and hope to see more of that in the future. Cool. James, can I ask a really simple question before we move on that maybe some of our audience members are wondering too? So yeah, you're still a practicing surgeon, you know, let's say the average, the normal work week is supposed to be 40 hours. I started trying to figure out like my work hours and I got too depressed and stopped. But you know, let's say that most surgeons are working a little north of that. And then it's probably overwhelming to some audience members to hear the level of expertise and detail going into this other sort of side job that you're essentially doing. So as you were going through the process for that umbilical hernia, how many hours a week do you think you were spending on, on that? Again, as Manoj pointed out, and I should have been super clear from the start, that that was not me slogging it out by myself. That was, you know, I think I mentioned it was a biodesign team that came to me. Um, they brought the idea, you know, we spent, you know, I was probably spending, you know, a few hours a week meeting with them, mentoring with them, you know, setting the plan. But I guess what I would say is if you really want to move something forward, you have to have, and you're a surgeon, you need to partner with someone who's going to wake up every day and worry about the project, Right. I operate every Monday and, you know, I can't be worrying about it. So I'm 20% clinical now, which has, but, but that's evolved over time uh, as my career has evolved. So I do have some bandwidth to do this, but really it's, it, it is all about being able to work with, with teams to get this stuff done. Level of understanding is one thing, but, but getting the work done requires, you know, young, energetic, capable people. My, uh, my operating day is Monday too, so there's something going on here. <laughs> that's, 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 that's all she'll be doing. I'll pray once a week. <laughs> uh, Renee and Manaj, maybe both this question be both you. You know, one of the, uh, I think the challenges when you're collecting data on patients, uh, there's a lot of layers of that, uh, HIPAA issues and other things. But I think an even bigger issue is the trust last few years, there's been a really explosion in the absence of trust amongst people who are collecting data. And obviously, it's not necessarily directed at medical firms yet. But, uh, you know, I don't see people saying terrible things about Epic and other CERN or other EMRs. Uh, they're directing it at Google and Facebook and other groups. But the the trust issue with many people in the world is, is really challenging right now with data. Uh, comments about how you can help support that trust. You know, your, your comment, Minaj, about patients owning their data. Renee, you said that to me uh, years ago, and people at Cerner have talked about that as well, is that giving people sort of ownership control, destiny management, if you will, of their individual data. They have to prove who uses their data. Uh, Renee, I know this is a big focus of yours and the work you're doing now, but maybe, uh, Renee, you go first, and Minaj second, if you could talk a little bit about that trust issue and letting patients understand how we're going to safely use their data to improve their own healthcare, but also the healthcare and outcomes of society so that they really believe that's they're part of this bigger mission. Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin. Um, after after building my, my EMR company and being asked by my, uh, my acquirers, which was a billion dollar corporation, and uh, I remember that first meeting, they asked me, what's your EBITDA? Uh, I didn't know what that was. I literally had to go on my phone, what the heck is EBITDA? I realized that I needed to come and get a, <laughs> some business training, and that's when I decided to come to Stanford. I'll get to the point in a second. And we actually built my new business out of uh, the Startup Garage, which is kind of an ecosystem within uh, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. We spent a couple of years with a team from Stanford building this thing. And we also, like Minaj, and it's funny, 
well, Minaj, we've talked about this over Zoom. Our companies actually sound the same. We kind of do the same thing a little bit. What we do is we go collect EMR data from across the country. We are connected to about 10,500 hospitals. We connect uh, any IoT devices or most, about 220 IoT devices. We collect um, genetic information. We grab by geolocation, pollution data, socioeconomic factors. We, We collect a lot of stuff. As you can imagine, that brings the patient trust aspect of things into the equation. We spent a lot of times over the past couple of years, and, and we've talked about this a bit, uh, Kevin. So we interviewed over 1,500 people to make sure that they would trust what we're doing, that we're collecting data. We also share it. We help them share it to research, to pharma if they want to, and just to have it with them at all times. And we wanted to find a way to make sure that they they would trust us. And the way to do that, that we found that really resonated well with the users was to let them see at all times who is using their data. So basically we do not sell data. We agglomerate data, it's decentralized. And when somebody pings their data, we, we know who that is because they log onto our platform to use it. We don't sell data, we sell access to our platform. Research institutions pay for it, pharma pays for it. And anytime Mr. Smith's information gets used, Mr. Smith sees it on his app. He'll see Kevin Shea's conducting a research on hip dysplasias, and this is what he's up to. And if ever there's a paper that's published, we let them know and we we make that paper accessible. So they always have eyes on what's going on with their data. And we thought we, you know, we found that was a game changer for us. Patient trust is extremely important when you're you know, this is this is just as important as bank data. Well, almost as important as bank data to some people. So you, you have to, to make sure that trust is a big part of your business if you're building this type of, of business here. Yeah, that's exactly the same. So we've, uh, Renan and I have had in-depth conversations about this. So we're building a, the, the way we're architecting it is that the, the, the data, I'd say, the implant in your body sits on your device in your own cloud. It never, ever leaves it. So your PHI is never released. So we're not even the third party that owns that data or, or that data sits on our platform. It sits on their device. So we're working with a, a group of programmers who who can who work in a specific programming language that allows everything to sit in a decentralized manner. So on your phone, in your own cloud. And we send in machine learning agents into those devices to pull out the data as and when patients opt in. So they say, I'm happy to share this data. The thing we're building on top of that, which I, I suppose is our sort of secret source, is that we're working with a large group of behavioral economists um, and some of them are connected to the, uh, some of you may have read a book called Nudge, which was written by Cass Sunstein, uh, which is how you nudge people to behave in a, in a in a better way and boost them when they start behaving in a better way, whether it's giving up smoking, losing weight, et cetera. But we're working with a wider group uh, to build incentivization pieces on top of it. So not only do you get to share your data and know who's accessing it, but you will get a reward in return for sharing that data. So essentially you own a piece of that ecosystem as it grows. And that reward can be something you keep, something you swap for real life goods or something you you donate. So you behave altruistically and you say, I'll give it to a a better cause such as a a patient society or a research association or um, something that improves innovation in the future. So it's it's something else we'll work on. So for us, it's not just about ownership, but it's about getting ownership of the ecosystem as a result of you contributing to it. So I can't reveal too much, but that's that's the sort of secret source that sits behind this entire platform. I think that's a, a very interesting approach to to let people know ahead of time 
who's using their data, how they're using data, people are, um, have access to their data, they own their data, and they really know who's using it, what they're using it for. I think those are critical for maintaining people engagement and trust. You know, I, I might ask both, uh, both of you to offer comments about, is this a way we can help researchers stay connected to their patients? Because one of the major problems we have in orthopedics and in many areas in, in healthcare is follow-up data is information. Uh, and a lot of times we lose track of our patients. You know, if you've got a specific problem and you got 30% follow-up at two years, you had 80% at six months and you got 30% at two years, you really struggle to draw meaningful conclusions about the impact of your intervention, whether it's medical, therapeutic, operative device. Thoughts about how we use these platforms to connect researchers, connect patients such that patients, I'm committed to this. My child has osteochondritis seconds or my child's got a genetic disorder. I really want to know what's happening and I want my data and my child's data, my family's data to help create a better world for everyone who has this problem. Any thoughts about how we increasingly use these platforms to keep researchers and patients connected in sort of this two-way bi-directional exchange of information about what we're learning? We share that back to patients so they want to keep giving information so we can learn more. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, great question, Kevin. So I, I think the important thing is to find ways to keep your patient engaged. If, if you have them on a platform where they're sharing data with their research team or their physician, there's a very good chance that you're going to see some, some, some churn. Um, we, we found that the patient needs to get something directly also. If he's going to get, like, if you have a rare disease, you know, you're highly incentivized, you might see a cure down the road by sharing your data, those patients might stay on a, little, a bit longer. But when you're talking about diabetes patients, when they're going to lose a toe in 20 years, it's, you need to find ways to get these people to stay on your platform. And the way to do that, that we found is, is again, we're agglomerating all of their medical data. And now machine learning, you know, we've been talking about AI and machine learning for a decade, but AI is here. It, it's like it's drastic. What's coming has, or, or what's here today has drastically changed the game. Even if you're a poor company that it's at, at the seed level, you can have access to these powerful models that have been built with billions of it or millions of images, you can have access to these tools to, to start generating insight for your patients. So uh, we work with the machine learning team from Stanford and we concentrate on gathering data for research, but we also concentrate on looking at what's happened, what's happening uh, directly with the patient's data. So we give them insight on how to manage their uh, glycemia, for example, how to better, you know, have better output on their bikes. If we have all of this data and we have continuous data coming in to the platform, there's ways to use it to create value for the patient. So it's not unidirectional. Yes, he shares with research, but he also has, he's going to, the patient's going to want to use the app because we actually create some value from that raw data. Um, so it has to be bi-directional. No, Raj, any thoughts about that? No, Do you have to take the face those same challenges? Yeah, same challenges. So, so, you know, I've been working in the AI space since, since 2015, 16. So we, we know this problem pretty well. You know, AI was already there, was already there in 2015, 16. It's a question of the use case and how you apply it to the vast amounts of data that comes through in healthcare. So I think that's definitely important. So for us, it's three levels. There's the building the architecture of the platform really securely, safely, privately, and allowing patients to have full trust in what they put on there, what they share. Then building a behavioral economics and incentivization piece. For us, the AI part is is the top end of it. And the reason I'm slightly skeptical about AI now, now you know, there are large language models like ChatGPT3 and R4, um, every Google bar that everyone's working on it, 
we're skeptical about it because I, I've seen how AI works. We've built amazing algos that use use deep learning to trawl through data and give you a result. What it can't tell you is why it gave you that result. So it's really good. You can query something and you get about this chat GPT. If any of you have used it, I'm sure you have. It's got exactly the same problem. It'll give you an amazing answer. It can it can lie to you completely if you ever wanted, but this answer sounds very, very good. So the biggest thing that everyone's trying to work through is something called, uh, work towards is something called explainable AI, where someone gives you an answer and you can explain, you can go back through the workings and say, the reason it said this was that. And I think that's where the trust really comes in in the future, where we have data sets that are built with the right ontology, with the right semantics. So you can go back into and say, they said that this patient, you know, the, the AI says this patient is doing this well at six months post this particular intervention. And it says that because a, B, C, D, E. And that explainable AI is, is for us the, the future. So for us, incentivization for long-term adherence and commitment from everyone in, that's a stakeholder in the platform, but then explainable AI on top of that from all these data sources that are coming in, but you can track them backwards to say, uh, this is the reason why we think yeah. this has happened. You know, Mark, that concept of explainable AI sounds really interesting. And and uh, I'm not an expert in AI. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn as much as I can, but uh, one of the things that I, as you said, that explainable AI, I think of that, you know, when you do a meta-analysis or systematic review, right. one of the things that you have to justify to the people who are looking at your article to, to see if they agree or disagree with your conclusions is you have to follow a Prisma diagram or Prisma right. process, which right. basically right. outlines inclusion criteria, exclusion right. criteria, and all the details and makes everything that you use to come to these conclusions completely transparent for everyone. Right. Uh, sounds like explainable AI is basically sort of creating a Prisma diagram for systematic review and meta-analysis in the research world. If, if I can use, maybe that's a bad analogy, but that's the way I think about it. Just no, it is. Um, the only other piece of the puzzle that I just throw in is this concept of decentralized science. And that's really taking off in the academic arena in that, you know, we've got a very sort of top heavy system where journals and academic organizations essentially own this data. Journals really control what's published. The peer review yeah. process can be pretty opaque sometimes. Uh, people are trying to make it more transparent, but this concept of how that data is analyzed, how then it's uh, it's presented, and then how it's shared and disseminated, but that's explainable all the way through uh, because you can track it on a on a public ledger, for example, like a blockchain. That's really taking off. There's a lot of investment in that area, and I think that's the future. And I think you know th there are big uh, incumbents who don't want the model to change, but it has to change because the the patient. As you said, patients have to know why you've decided to do something to them and whether the thing you've done to them works or not. Um, and that has to come from true data that you can explain. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, Card, I don't know if you had another question, but maybe if you have another question that maybe we might ask all four of our, uh, or the three who are left, just maybe some final summary comments. Yeah, no, I think that, that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Let's do that. And then uh, we will say our, our thank yous and goodbyes. So um, as far as a summary, a summary question, just as brief as you can keep this potentially very long question, if there's anything off the top of your head, you could tell us one mistake that jumps out to you that you made during this process in retrospect, through the retrospectoscope. Go with you, James. Sure. I think my biggest mistake on multiple projects has been falling in love with my own idea for features and not really having a clear value proposition. I think as an innovator, one of the things... And as a surgeon innovator, early in my career, I would see a problem in front of me that was my problem, and I would think of a clever solution, fall in love with it, and not really think through the whole process of, 
how much it's going to cost, the ultimate opportunity, and the value it's going to present. But can I just sell one of my colleagues on some features? So what I would really stress to people, um, particularly in surgical innovation, is think comprehensively, think about the ultimate value to the system. And your solution may not be a widget. It may be digital. It may be a service. But, but really think creatively about solutions and ultimately think about the the sale once this thing's built and how you're going to convince someone to give you a dollar for it. Cool. How about you, Renee? Well, first of all, ex exiting too soon from my EMR startup, for sure. Uh, when I built this thing, I came out of school. When I started practicing, I had $450,000 of student debt and just, you know, I was struggling. I was paying, you know, paying an engineer. And I remember one time we, we couldn't make payroll. We had a $150,000 payroll. The next day we had $0 in the bank. We had to use our credit cards and everything. And when we got that first offer, we jumped on it. It was life-changing money, but we should have kept on to that to, to, to that business. We we bootstrapped everything. We didn't take any venture capital because none, nobody would give any to us, uh, unlike a menage. Uh, uh, so uh, we we did what we could, and uh, but we got a, a good deal. But exiting way too soon. I still wish that I, I owned that company. The second thing is, you know, especially now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You don't need to be a conglomerate or a mega corporation to uh, to be able to transform an industry today. Especially with with the stuff you can find on GitHub, you can build some pretty powerful tools by using the the, the building blocks on GitHub. You know, I remember when we were coding for our first platform, we had to code every single line of code. Now these all these building blocks are already there on GitHub. You can just go grab them and build your your Lego set to build a product. And uh, if, if you're building to, to, to fix your own problem, and like James said, you can find someone that's gonna give you a buck for it. I think uh, you're well on your way. Yeah, perfect. Oh. Minaj, how about you? I've made so many mistakes. I can't believe you said that already. So I've made every single mistake to, to be able to get to this point. And I'm only talking about, you know, the, the, the numerator, not the various denominators that have gone completely wrong. Uh, but I'd say the mistakes I made over and over again was holding on to my idea too early and thinking I could do it all myself and not getting the right people on board who are cleverer, faster, better, more experienced in every single area that you need for a startup to work. And you think you should hold on, not give too much away. And that just makes everything painful and lasts longer and you don't get to the end point quickly. So it's build, finding the right people to build a team quickly. That's mistakes I've made over and over again. On the clinical side, mistakes I've made... Uh, when I was sort of less aware of business and, you know, I was just trying to do new things, was just talk to lots of people about lots of things and not really follow anything up. And this is a piece of advice to people who are listening or in training or early in their career, that people are always talking to you, particularly if you're a surgeon or you're in the operating room about problems that you're seeing. And sometimes you don't know the value of your own information, your own experience, and you can be naive about it and, and sort of tell everyone, you know, all the problems without realizing there is something to protect um, and build the right group of people around you to protect that and build it correctly. Um, so that's my sort of clinical problem, you know, mistakes that I've made early on. Yeah. Other than that, I'm still making mistakes yeah. constantly. Every every success is following, you know, 100 mistakes. There's no, no question. No question, right. but you keep going. Well, Perfect answer. Um, to wrap things up, first of all, you guys are doing really cool, really inspiring stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I tried to scribble down just some themes to pull out of this for the audience. Uh, let's see if I can read my handwriting. I think first and foremost, start with solving your problems. Like Renee said, I love that. Don't start trying to build a company. 
maybe a competitor for first and foremost, there's lots of paths to do this. So we heard about partnering with industry. If you're going to partner with industry, maybe look for those small, uh, small mobile companies for a little more agility, like Iris said. If you're going to go the uh, go the way of starting your own company, maybe uh, try to hold on to things, uh, keep it in-house as long as you can before raising funding. A theme that came up a couple times, partner with the right people, get a project manager, You know, be conscious of how much time you have. We heard about how universities have good resources, but they do come at a cost uh, if you're partnering with a university. Sometimes it sounds like all roads lead to Stanford, but hopefully that doesn't make everyone else uh, give up. And um, I love that point about don't fall in love with your ideas, but uh, keep an open mind about other solutions. So with that said, before we sign off, I want to say a huge thank you to Erica and the whole POSNA team that make this possible, always uh, working relentlessly and uh, doing things well. And uh, Kevin, my co-host, who this was really his brainchild. So thank you for the opportunity to be involved with this. And um, thank you, guys. Thanks, sir. Thanks, Thanks much for having us. Thanks. Have a lovely day.